It's a sure sign that Lent is coming because the Gospels are starting to get longer. And yet, even though we have heard this long passage, we have barely scratched the surface of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is the third Sunday in a row we've been listening to the fifth chapter of Matthew. And we'll hear from it again next Sunday, and then we'll switch to Lent, and so we will stop. And yet there's so much in that great teaching of Jesus for our consideration. It started with the Beatitudes two Sundays ago. Last Sunday we were told that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But now Jesus makes something very clear to his critics, and it really surprised them. He said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's speaking to thousands of people gathered on the hillsides by the shores of Galilee. Many of them have traveled great distances. Most of them come because they believe that he is the Son of God. But there are those that followed Jesus all the thousand days of his public ministry, not because they did believe, but precisely because they did not. They were there to listen to what Jesus said and watch what Jesus did, only to find further fault with him. Already by this point in the gospel, his critics are many. The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the scholars of the law, the Herodians, the Romans. Many of these groups didn't have much love for each other, but they're all united in one thing. They believe that Jesus is controversial. So much of what he says and does to them sounds somewhere between blasphemy or treason or both. And they certainly did not believe that he came to fulfill the law. They certainly felt that he came to abolish it. Because in the eyes of those elite of Judaism at that time, Jesus was nothing more than an outlaw to the outcast. He's breaking all the rules. He was going to Samaritan towns. That was forbidden. He was working miracles for Samaritan people. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been dealing with them. He's touching lepers. That's a no-no. He was working miracles on the Sabbath. He was eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. His disciples, they weren't washing their hands enough or appropriately. So many different things. But the worst things were what Jesus said, as far as his critics are concerned. For him to keep referring to God as Father, that was blasphemy. For him to talk about forgiving people their sins, only God can do that. They don't believe he's God, that's blasphemy. Every time they call him a king, that's treason. The charges against him are many. Jesus really got them going when he said, hidden in today's gospel, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. For most of the people listening, they just thought that wasn't possible. He's raising the bar too high. Who could be that righteous? But for the scribes and the Pharisees themselves, they thought it was laughable. Nobody could be nearly as righteous as they are. And certainly no one become more righteous than they who were so self-righteous. And in the end, that's the problem. Jesus is making a very broad point at the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Why did God give us his law? Jesus would say that God gave the law in order to promote and to preserve right relationships with God and with each other. It's meant for salvation, not condemnation. But that same law, which when given through the prophets and patriarchs of Israel to God's chosen people, that was a marriage covenant. Those were vows. You'll be my people. I will be your God. This is how you can be faithful to me and I to you. 
that law was proactive. That law was written in love and with the intent of salvation. But whereas the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, the scholars of the law, once they got their hands in those Hebrew scriptures and the Torah, they took the 613 laws of ritual purity in the Torah and turned it into 6,000 pages of commentaries on the law found in the Talmud. And people could be found guilty of breaking the laws that were in the scripture, but also not keeping the traditions that were found in the Talmud. And it was one strike and you are out. And they were keeping a list and they were checking it twice, but they just found everybody to be naughty. That was their self-righteousness. And that's where Jesus thinks something is missing. Because whereas God gave the law for salvation, they're using it only for condemnation. The law was meant as an instrument of redemption and to preserve the common good for all people. But in the hands of those elite, the law had become a wedge and a weapon to make people feel far from God far and different from each other, instead of allowing them a chance to come back and be returned through repentance to right relationship with God and restored in their relationships with their fellow man. Instead, those Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes, they were using that law to write people off. They are unworthy. They are unlovable. They are untouchable. They are unclean. Jesus then, yes, he's come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He believes God's law should be kept because he is God and he was there when God wrote it in the first place. But there's something lacking and this is how Jesus fulfills it. What's lacking from the law was its application in love. Where those Pharisees, they should be pointing out people's faults in order to correct those faults, to repent of their faults and be brought back. But instead, they're just using it to draw a circle of trust in which most people are on the outside and there's no way back in. Jesus, he wanted them to apply the law with a means towards reconciling people, loving people, saving people, not condemning them, to open them to heaven's gate, not condemn them to the gates of hell. And that's been a challenge for Christians throughout the centuries because so many times we find ourselves judging other people because we're judging what they've done, what we think they're doing, what they're thinking of doing, whatever the case may be. It's the old splinter in the plank. Spending so much time judging for other people's moral faults and failings, we tend to overlook what we ourselves might be doing that we ought not. And this is a challenge for us, especially in this modern age, when we find the people who actually believe what the Bible teaches and live according to it, who actually adhere to the teachings of our church and live by it, that group is getting smaller. And so that can put us on the defensive. And we might find ourselves condemning the people in the world around us or even people in the pew beside us. And yet we will not win souls for Christ by condemnation. We will not win people back to the church by only telling them, what we're against and what they're doing wrong. Instead, like Jesus, who ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, like Jesus, who would rather associate with the least, the leper, and the lame instead of the worldly, the wealthy, and the wise, we are supposed to go out there and love people to heaven, forgive people their faults, and overlook their weaknesses the way God has overlooked ours. Yes, we fight for the right issues, and we don't always win, and we will continue to lose those battles until Christ comes again. But we will not win those souls back to the church or for Christ or for heaven by just telling people what we are against. 
Instead, Catholic Christians, as lights in dark places, need to start reminding people of what we are for. We are for the human person. We are for human life and the life of all God's creation in every stage of development. We are for love, but a love that expresses itself in mercy and forgiveness and second chances. We are for truth. We are for beauty. We are for goodness. We are forever.